And as you do so, let's turn in our Bibles to Amos and uh, the very last chapter, Amos and chapter 9. We're coming to the end of our studies in Amos. So that's uh, um, another study that we are wrapping up, making progress. Just as this morning we finished First Samuel chapter 15, and so we should be heading back to Ephesians. Uh, today we are wrapping up Amos, and then we will, the Lord willing, next time just handle the one single chapter of Obadiah, and then continue galloping on as we are studying in the major lessons from the minor prophets. Major lessons from the minor prophets. Allow me, as we begin, to just remind you of the ground we have covered in this book. Uh, the Amos is often referred to as the Lord that roars. In other words, the, the lion that is roaring and therefore threatening to consume, to destroy uh, those who are near. And rightly so, if you study this book, you cannot miss the fact that almost consistently, I hope to show you in a few minutes, it is judgment upon judgment upon judgment, upon judgment. The one place where the situation completely changes is in chapter 9, where we will be looking together this evening. Otherwise, prior to that, it is judgment upon judgment. So, if we can quickly go backwards and uh, begin with chapter 1, I want you to notice that uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 were basically about God judging the nations. He has sovereign power over all the nations. And he was singling out their different sins, and especially sins against his own people, and he was saying he is coming to judge them. So there it is, verse 3, uh, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, and so on. If you were here, you will remember all that. And then in chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, there is the threat upon Judah. For three transgressions of Judah, and for four... I will not revoke the punishment. And then verse 6 was punishment upon Israel. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. What we noticed then was that the one for Israel is the longest. So the other ones were always quite short. But the threat against Israel is fairly long, more than double that of all the others. So that's what we said was judgment, judgment, and it's sovereign 
over all the nations. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, what we noticed was that God now razor focused on Israel alone, that they are the ones that he's going to discipline. And at the very beginning of chapter 3, he gives the reason why. And there it is, verse 2. You only have I known for all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And so that's what we have in chapter 3 all the way to chapter 4. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, uh, Amos is continuing with the threats for punishment. But this time he is saying there is a way in which you can avoid this punishment. And it is if you will repent. If you will seek the Lord, you may avert the punishment. And so, for instance, we read uh, in verse 4, for, that's chapter 5 and verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and live. So that's your, your hope. If you can humble yourself or humble yourselves, you may avert the punishment. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Sadly, as we go on to see in chapter 6, that's not the attitude that Israel has. The attitude of Israel is that of relaxation. Relaxation. Things will always be the way it is. Come on, let's not listen to this kind of noise. And so we read in chapter 6, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. Verse 4 Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. So that's the attitude instead that they have. So he's giving them the way to escape. Their attitude is that of, hey, excuse us, we're enjoying ourselves here, and so forth. In uh, verse chapter 7 and chapter 8, which is what we looked at last time, God now was using various images to illustrate the discipline that was inevitably coming. And so he kept saying, the Lord has showed me, the Lord has showed me, and so on. You remember, chapter 7, verse 1, this is what the Lord showed me, and there were a lot of locusts there. Verse 7, this is what he showed me, and there was a wall with a, a plumb line, and so forth. It was various pictures that were being given uh, to him and what they were illustrating. And all of them were illustrating the fact that punishment is going to, to come and it will be uh, overwhelming punishment. Just different pictures that he was being given. Chapter 8, verse 1 
This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? Again, simply saying, these are ripe now. And Israel is ripe for punishment. And so forth. So that's what we have seen thus far. And it makes the message of, of Amos fairly clear. You, you can't miss the movement that is taking place there. And you can't miss the one thread. The one thread is punishment is coming. God, the Lord, the lion, rose. As we get to chapter 9 now, it's just one chapter that we are looking at together. We see God's glorious restoration of his people. The promised glorious restoration of his people. But it is preceded by yet one more picture of judgment coming. In a way, it is like the midnight sky so that you can appreciate the stars that are about to be flung in with that background. So as we begin to look at chapter 9, um, verse 1 to about verse 10, let's remember that it is preparing us for verse 11 to the very end. Verse 11 to the very end. And again, it, it, it begins almost like those previous four um, visions that um, Amos was being shown. And so he begins by saying, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said. One or two differences, the previous ones were, were visions that he was being shown. They were, they, he was being shown uh, types that he needed to interpret. And the Lord would say to him, what am I showing you? And then he would mention, and then there would be an interpretation of, of sorts that we're speaking about judgment. In this particular case, it's not a vision as such. It's not seeing some plant or a wall or locusts or whatever, animals. He's not seeing anything like that. He is simply seeing the Lord himself. The Lord himself is the one that is being seen. And is being seen beside the altar. Now, the, 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 the altar speaks of, number one, atonement. It's God's provision that his people may have their sins forgiven. So it speaks about atonement. But number two, it speaks about fellowship. Because once atonement for sin has been made, the result of that is reconciliation with God. And so the moment an Israelite saw an altar, it immediately said to him, one, God has provided the means of punishment to, rather the means of atonement, to reconciliation and fellowship with God. And therefore, it, it comes as a total shock when you now read the rest of this verse 
Because that's not what it is saying. Look at the rest of the verse. It's actually saying destruction. At the altar and is toes until the threshold shakes and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee, not one of them shall escape. Wow! That's not what you expected. It's like being invited to a party. So you obviously are looking forward to eating and dancing and whatever else happens at parties. And then when you arrive there, there is some American guy who's crazy with his gun. And brrrr, he wipes you out and tomorrow you are all in the news that uh, another guy has uh, killed so many people. I mean, the moment you arrive there and you see a gun, it's shocking. Because that's not what you're expecting. You're expecting to enjoy the evening. And yet, that's exactly the message of Amos here. That actually, God is coming to punish. And he's coming to punish all of you. When he speaks, strike the capitals, he's not, God is not speaking to Amos here. God is commanding an angel to do that because there's no way that, that Amos would have the power to climb up those pillars in the temple, reach the top just under where the, the roof sits and then start shaking them to bring down that entire column. That's out of question. It must have been a command being given to his angels, the angels that come in to do judgment. And he is saying, disturb those capitals, which is the, the part on top of the pillar, shake, 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 until the trembling reaches the bottom, the things fall, the roof caves in and everybody dies. Everybody. And shatter them on the heads of all the people. And then those who run away, when everything is happening like that, they manage to go out through the windows and doors. He says, I will kill with a sword. No one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. That's what I'm coming to do. These mass shooters we hear about, a few people escape and they live to tell the story. Not this one. This one, even those who escape are hunted down and finished off. In fact, verse 2 down to verse 4 gives us five possible places where those who escape would try and hide. And he is saying, Go and hide. I'm coming after them. So there is no hiding place at all. Zero. That is how exhaustive he will be. So look at the different places. And what I want you to notice as we go through the different places is that he begins 
in the bottom, I'll fish you out. He goes to the top, I'll fish you out. And he comes again back into the bottom. With the vertical plane and saying, whether you go down or you go up, I'll fish you out. And then he goes horizontal now. Doesn't matter how far you will go, I'll still come there and fish you out. Look at this. He says, if they dig into Sheol, which is the place of the dead, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, he says, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Camel, that's Mount Camel, right at the top of a mountain, from there I will search them, I will search them out and take them down again. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And then the horizontal. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. In other words, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. I said this. Nobody is going to escape, he said. It will be total annihilation. That's the judgment that is coming. There's no hiding away from me, O Israelites. So again, remember the picture. It is the Lord standing beside the altar. Just the place where you say, now, peace, peace. And the result is, there's no peace. It's complete and highlation. Doesn't matter where you go, you cannot hide from me. It's a lesson that we definitely need to keep reminding ourselves and keep reminding, especially stubborn sinners, that the God we speak about is not a, a playboy. Is not one that we can hide away from. When discipline comes, when punishment comes, there's no escaping. It's the same theme that we find in Psalm 139, isn't it? Psalm 139. I won't read the whole of it, but the appropriate section, Psalm 139, Nine, and I just want to read verse 7 down to verse 12. Verse 7 down to verse 12. It's an amazing psalm of David in which he's basically saying, you know me so well. There's nothing about me that I can hide away from. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell to the uttermost parts of the sea, so he went from vertical heaven to Sheol and now uttermost ends of the sea, horizontal. What does he say? He says, if I take the wing of the morning, dwell the mouth parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me or uphold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even is not dark to you. As the day for darkness is as light with you. There's no escaping God. There's nothing like that. He is the all-knowing God and he is the all-present God. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. And that's the reason why, you know, being a hypocrite to God is really ridiculous. How? You know, you can be a hypocrite to other human beings because they are not there half the time. And when the lights are off, they don't know what you're doing. But God, how? And when now he says, okay, time up, this nonsense needs to be over. I'm coming after you. There's no way you can go to hide. He catches up with you. In fact, back to uh, Amos and chapter 9, uh, in, in verse 5 down to verse 6, just two verses, uh, Amos mentions the reason why it's utterly impossible to run away from this God if you are stubbornly sinning against him. And it is because he is the sovereign God over all creation. The sovereign God over all creation. And so he begins by saying there, uh, the Lord God of hosts. Now that phrase simply means Hosts has to do with the, the, a huge army, a huge army. So this, the Lord God of hosts is suggesting that he, he is one who has such an army that he's bound to, to catch up with you and destroy you. But I want you to notice that uh, he is in charge of the whole of creation. Look, he who touches the earth and it melts. That's suggesting a, an earthquake, suggesting a volcano, and the, the, the molten lava is spilling out. He, he touches it and it melts. And all who dwell in it mourn. And all of it, that's suggesting an earthquake, rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. I mean, it's talking about the, the trembling that is happening on, on, on the earth. This God is able to, to shake the very earth that is under us. 
then he speaks about his presence both up there and down here. So he's got power over all creation and he is both in heaven and on earth as his throne room. Look at the way he puts it here. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. Notice it is his chambers, it is his vaults. That's how he is in charge. Whether you go up or you come down, he is one who is still in charge. And uh, his armies who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. Even the waters are his soldiers, his armies. He can send floods and devastate entire areas. And then he says, the Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. You don't play with this God. You don't. Once he roars, that's it. As we often say about the, the lion, we refer to the lion as uh, the king of the jungle. The king of the jungle. Once you are in the lion's mouth, that's it. There's no other animal that's going to come to rescue you. Because as long as you're in the jungle, you are in his domain. That's the kind of God who is there. And that's why we need to feel sorry for people who just because they've got money or they've got political power or they, they have education or whatever it is that they have on their sides, they start daring God. They start persecuting his church. They, they throw away all morality and begin to live like beasts of the field. You remember Pharaoh? Who is the Lord that I should obey? Who is it? Well, when God was finished with Pharaoh, none of us knew what happened to him, whether he died in the Red Sea or... He remained without an army, but definitely totally devastated with all the families in his entire nation, all of them having funerals on one night. All of them. Even the cattle, the sheep, the goats, the chickens, everybody is mourning. What a fool he was to be attempting to... Say to God, who are you? Who are you? He is the Lord. That's it. The Lord of hosts. The whole of creation is his army. He can devastate you. Well, just one more point before we get to the good news. Good news we are coming to. And it is this, that uh, as God comes 
now to punish Israel. Thankfully, he is a God who chooses who he's coming to punish. And it is sinners that he's after. Sinners. Those are the ones he's after. Our God is not an indiscriminate killer. No. Or punisher. No. He's one who is razor-focused. And that's what he speaks about in verse 7 down to verse 10 before he changes. And I want you to notice this aspect. So verse 7 <clears throat> to verse 8. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Ker? Okay, so here I am. I'm coming into the midst of these mighty nations and I'm coming to pull out those whom I want to rescue as I'm destroying everybody else. That's what I've been doing. And then he says this, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. Notice that. Sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. So I'm coming in the way I rescued, for instance, Israel out of Egypt. I destroyed Egypt altogether, but I rescued my people. In the same way, my eyes are fixed upon the sinful kingdom. That's the one I will completely destroy. But my own people, I will finally rescue. Those that are seeking to walk according to my ways, declares the Lord. What a source of comfort for those who are genuine children of God to know that this God is not one who sort of just takes a bomb and throws it and then Everybody, everything is destroyed. He is a God who cares that my true people are seeking to honor me. They're seeking to walk in righteousness. And therefore, I will not destroy them. In fact, what I'm doing actually is purging the evil. That's what I'm doing. Purging the evil so that I can have a clean people, a pure people, a righteous people in the end. Again, the same thing in verse 9 and 10. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve and no pebble shall fall to the earth. What do you mean by that? Well, he tells us what he means in verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Notice who shall die. All the sinners of my people. 
So I'm coming in to deal with those who are stubborn and arrogant. Coming in. But my true people that genuinely worship me, I will preserve to myself. So as he was speaking about total annihilation, it's not really total annihilation. It is the total annihilation of the wicked. But his own people will be preserved and they will come to him. And it is these, his own people, the pure, the godly, that he now begins to give this hope. This hope. Verse 11 downwards. In that day. Eh? <laughs> In that day, I will raise up the booth of David. Verse 13. Behold, the days are coming. It's to them that is now saying, yes, the situation looks bad. But don't worry. There's a day that's coming. And it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious beyond your wildest imagination. That's what's coming. And that's what, if you are a true child of God, that's what you need to hold on to in the midst of the storm that is coming and consuming the wicked. Is to say... The Lord knows who are his own. Let those who profess the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And in the end, we will stand upon the earth and smile. Let's quickly read this. It says, uh, verse 11 and 12, about this new people. And what I want you to notice about them is that they are international. It's no longer just Israel. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and listen to this, and all the nations who are called by my name. There it is. All the nations who are called by na my name declares the Lord who does this. So this entire ruin you are seeing, because I've come in with judgment, I will move in as the architect and builder, and I will recreate something that will now be completely international and no sinner is going to dwell in it. No sin ourselves. Now, thankfully, the New Testament quotes this. So let's go to uh, Acts and chapter 15. Acts 15. While attending there, let me give the background to Acts 15. Basically, what happened was when... Um, Barnabas were out in Asia um, ministering, planting churches. When they came back to Antioch, they found 
that some individuals had come from Jerusalem and were insisting that these Gentiles should also observe the law of Moses, the, the ceremonial civil laws and so on, that they observe those laws um, if they are to really be counted as God's people. In other words, they must join Israel, basically. That's what it meant. Gentiles must join the Israelites. Paul and Barnabas did not agree with them. So there was a, quite a debate that took place. And finally they said, okay, let's go to, to Jerusalem, to the mother church, so that we might hear from them uh, what this doctrine is supposed to finally be, which should be authoritative. So I'm jumping the first 11 verses and coming to verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, among the non-Jews in Asia where they had gone to minister. After they finished speaking, James, James was like the leader of the eldership together with the apostles at that time, replied, so we can use the word chairman these days, replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And I think we all know that story from the house of Cornelius, what happened there. Okay, so Peter had, had that experience. Now listen to this. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So this is a bit of a paraphrase. He must have been speaking um, extempo, as we say. But you can't miss where it is coming from. It's literally, or almost, word for word. But look at his conclusion, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men, and then they went. Basically, his conclusion was, look, the, the Gentiles are not coming to join the Jews. So that they start observing our customs. Rather, it is a new body that is being erected. I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David, I will rebuild its ruin, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord 
and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So this is going to be a new body that he is making out of the two. And it's going to be an international body rather than under the umbrella of Israel. And the Gentiles here, or the remnant of mankind, in um, Amos, it's the references that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And Edom was Esau's uh, children. And they are a people that no doubt were not Jacob's people. And they are being brought in all together. So that's the first thing that he's saying. He's saying, what's coming now is a, a glorious people that are completely international. My people among the Jews will be in it, but so will be people from so many other nations of the earth. Guess who that is? It's the church. It's the church. And it's important, brethren, when we are reading, especially the prophets, and they are speaking about the promises of Israel in the future, it's important for us to capture that in the mind of God, it's not that physical nation of Israel that's being promised, all those promises. It's actually his people in terms of the church. That's where it is going to be fulfilled. In fact, as I hope to show you in the next moment, this is something that ultimately can only finally be fulfilled when we get to heaven. Ultimately. Because this is so glorious that it, it, it can't be fu fully enjoyed in this world of suffering and pain and anxiety and want and so on. Let's quickly read this. Um, back to Amos. Amos and uh, chapter 9. I want us now to read verse 13 to the end. And I want you to see the overwhelming blessing. The abundant blessing that he is promising. He says there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the trader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And I hope I've explained that by now. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord. Now, the picture of the plowman shall overtake the reaper is an incredible picture. And let me try and explain it to you. He's talking about abundance. So, 
the plowman is basically the one who, who plants. Okay? So, he is... Let's imagine the field goes from there all the way up to that end. Okay, so the, the plowman plants and then the harvest finally comes up. The whole of this is the harvest. So when the harvest comes up, the harvester begins from there to harvest. Okay. And he harvests for much of the year because he's got the time to get to that end. And then the coming season for planting, the, the sower starts all over again. He's sowing. Now, in this particular case, the message is this, that the sower planted, the harvest came out, the harvester has begun harvesting. But the harvest is so much that before he can get to that end, the sowing has begun. And the sower catches up with the harvester. Because it's so abundant, this harvest, that the whole year, so if we can imagine Zambia, we normally harvest around about April, May, June, and the harvesting is finished. Then we normally come to plant around about November, December. So imagine that you've got such a huge harvest that April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, you are still harvesting, still bringing in into the barn. And by November, December, the guys for sowing have begun and they find you are still harvesting because of the abundant supply. So that's the meaning behind there. When the plowman, the one who uh, is um, plowing the land, shall overtake the reaper. Goes right past you. Because the harvest is so much. So this is God's promise to his people. And although he, it, is, it is clothed in the language of Israel and Jerusalem, and Mount Zion, and so on, it is simply because it is addressing those people. But otherwise, every so often, you see glimpses of this being beyond Israel. It's the international body, the Christian church, that is being spoken about. And we have already seen it here. And as I already said, it is the type that cannot be fully applied to this planet Earth. It is what we sing about when we say um, there's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. It's, it's a glorious, glorious land. That even the Christian church now, we haven't fully entered into it. No, no, no. The promises of God are still going forward. In fact, on earth, the church itself is not 100% pure. It's definitely purer than Israel. There's no doubt about it because it is upon profession of faith 
that you come into the church. But we know that it's not pure yet. But on that day, when we are being brought into that glorious land, not a single unbeliever will come in. Not a single. He will be like a sniper. He will clear out all the hypocrites. All those who were still dwelling in sin, he will clear them out. And only those who truly believed in Christ, truly, who were regenerate, their hearts were transformed from the inside, only those will come in. That's what Revelation 20 and 21 emphasizes. That all the, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the, the immoral, and all liars will be outside. All of them. They will all go into eternal punishment. But those who are his are the ones who will come into the city four square. That needs no light. Because the Lord himself. His glory will give them that light. Amos is saying, don't worry. God's people will never be extinguished completely from this earth. When God comes in judgment, he will rescue his people and it will be a glorious end. We are already enjoying something of it in the international church, but something more glorious awaits even us, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So our appeal is that all of us make sure we are in Christ. Not just hiding in him while we are living in sin. That ain't gonna help. It is coming in him and genuinely saved by him. Genuinely. That we can say, my life has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Come to him that way. And if for any reason you thought you came to him, but you are still actually living in sin, only that it is hidden sin, wake up. This God, you can't hide from him. Kulibe, you can't. Wake up and go for actual cleansing so that you might be in that land that is fairer than day. Amen.